Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a scientist who is testing the boundaries of human-robot interaction. I would like always to think of these robots or devices that we are developing as a new X-ray machine. Humans cannot see an X-ray, but we build this machine and now we can see an X-ray. Similar, you can build robots that can see certain things that humans cannot see and then help humans understand. That was Maya Pantich, Professor of Effective and Behavioural Computing at Imperial College in London. She came into the FT to talk to me about her work. It's a great job title, Maya. Tell us exactly what you do. I'm applying computer vision and machine learning for automatic understanding of human behavior, including human emotion and affect. And that's where the title is coming from, affective computing and behavioral computing. And you run a program there called iBug, which also is a wonderful name. What does that stand for? iBug stands for Intelligent Behavior Understanding Group, and it's actually the research group that I run at Imperial College. What's the aim of that group in particular? It's automatic understanding of human behavior, including emotions, including stances, mental states, behavioral cues or behavioral biomarkers of certain illnesses and so on. How did you get interested in this whole field? In principle, this is a long, really long story. I always was fascinated by psychology, but psychology was one of the subjects that I always had an exceptionally good grade. In fact, the only subject for which I didn't have a very good grade was maths. So this was the reason why I decided to study mathematics. And then it was just natural, I think, that over the longer period of time, and once I realized that mathematical and computing techniques could be applied for automatic understanding of behavior, I simply included my second love, which was psychology and understanding of humans. And I saw that the title of your doctoral thesis was Facial Expression Analysis by Computational Intelligence Techniques. So that's really the focus of your entire work now. Correct. So in principle, for the last 20 years, I am trying to understand behavior. Behavior is very, very difficult to understand and it's very versatile. This is why we still do not understand each other instantly. There is a lot of problems actually in understanding each other. And one of the reasons is actually that face is just one window. It's a wonderful window. It's something which we can observe. Hence, I started with faces because most of the emotions and most of the behavioral cues are visible in the face. There is a huge boom in this whole field of human-robot interaction, HRI, at the moment. What are the most difficult challenges, do you think, in this field? Again, it's the same. It's really understanding the human and uh, building the models that would interact with the human in a way that it is, uh, say, natural for humans. So, sure, humans are really interesting because they can adapt to almost anything and any kind of interaction. So even if the robots do not actually follow certain ways which will be natural for humans, humans will adapt to what they see. But on the other side, it is really problematic because for us it's really normal to speak. And yet speech recognition, although a lot of speech recognition engines do exist, speech is still a very difficult problem. Because, sure, if I speak slowly and if I speak with no emotional coloring, you will understand what I'm saying. 
Not always so because I do not have a British accent and hence it will be more difficult to understand me than you. But on the other side, it's easier if I do not show any emotions. But the moment we have some emotional coloring or the moment I get old or the moment my son is speaking to a machine, these things will not be recognized. I'd like to back up just a minute because some of our listeners are going to write in and say all of this talk about human-robot interaction computers, robots are tools. They are things that we should program to perform a specific function. Why do we need this human-robot interaction at all? In principle, it doesn't matter. Robots are just one embodiment of artificial intelligence. But embodiment that we use on a daily basis, and in fact, people are using it more and more and excessively a lot currently, are phones. So this is just another embodiment of the artificial intelligence. Yet another one would be a plane. Everybody flies by plane and everybody thinks that's normal. Well, it became normal, but in principle, there is artificial intelligence which is running behind it. Driverless cars is another one and so on and so forth. But the phones are really important because we use them really a lot. So it's important that these kind of technology and devices can understand the humans and the human commands, at least the commands. And if we could go beyond that and understand, for example, that I'm sad or I'm excited or I am confused, then these devices could help me. The car could help me and say, well, I think that you do not know the way. Do you want me to show you again the way or zoom in in the map that I'm currently showing to you? And how far are we along in this field of evolution at the moment? I mean, how good are robots at detecting nonverbal communication? Well, they are good in certain ways, bad in the other ways. So it's important to understand that we always compare to human performance. But humans had thousands of years of training, and even the newly born child has certain aptitude for, for example, face recognition and face detection and certain facial expression recognition. But the robot has to be trained, and we have to have the data to train the robot. So in principle, a lot depends on this data that you have and we do not have that much data, although everybody tells that we have tons of data. It's not really like that. So on one side, they need a lot of data to be trained. On the other side, they do have certain equipment that is actually better than the equipment of humans. So, you know, we use cameras and the cameras can see something like minimally 30 frames per second. Human eye can see 15, maybe 20 frames per second consciously. 20 is really rarely. So in principle, computers, devices can have a better span of information, a better catch of information. So I would like always to think of these robots or devices that we are developing as a new X-ray machine. Humans cannot see an X-ray, but we build this machine and now we can see an X-ray. Similar, you can build robots that can see certain things that humans cannot see and then help humans understand and explain this to the human. Give us an example of that. I mean, that's a fascinating idea of kind of a robot x-ray. So one of the things is actually the movement of the face. It's really interesting because, you know, certain diseases like, for example, dementia or depression are directly linked to the speed of the movement that you see on the face or in the eye. So we as humans simply cannot see that because we do not have this temporal resolution in the eyes. But the cameras do have this temporal resolution. So in principle, you would be able to spot behavioral biomarkers of these illnesses better by cameras and help your doctor directly, like X-ray helps, to see what's going on. You're talking about some of the good aspects of this. There are also slightly worrying aspects of it as well. I mean, there was 
research which claimed that they could study whether using people's faces or whether they were gay or not. Is that a good thing or can it be abused to target advertising at particular segments of the population? I think in principle that all research can be misused and I don't think AI is at all any exception to that. In fact, there is a lot of discussion of, for example, building consciousness into robots. First, I think there is no purpose to that. And hence, if something is not purposeful, I do not see the reason of doing that. Is it possible? That's a second excellent question. We have no idea how consciousness works in humans. We have no idea what is the brain kind of function that would reflect and model the consciousness. So just the fact that you talk about something you actually do not know any model of is just nonsense in my opinion. This doesn't mean we will never find how the consciousness works in humans. Maybe we will. But then it comes to the first question, is this really purposeful to build such robots? I've heard one argument that philosophers make, which is that we will never know whether robots are conscious, in that I think that I am conscious because I think therefore I am. I understand the world in a certain way, but I have absolutely no idea of whether the feelings that I feel and the thoughts that I have in any way relate to the ones that are going on in your head. We have no objective way of assessing the consciousness of another human being. How are we ever going to assess whether a robot is conscious? I really like this as an example that you gave. The issue is actually that we do not know whether other animals are conscious. And hence, we have no idea how in any, not only human, any biological brain, how consciousness works. Whether we will be able to assess whether a machine is conscious or not, I guess yes, because we would, by the fact that we can know whether other person or other animal is conscious, that we have this model, we will then be able to apply that to the robots as well. However, I think we are really far away from that, from modeling actually what consciousness is. However, what's really interesting that you mentioned is understanding the other human being and the thoughts and the feelings that you have. As you can imagine, each and every brain is completely different. And also physiologically, we are very, very different. This is why we don't have the same emotions. This is why we are not happy about the same things. We are not frustrated about the same thing. We are very different. And hence, I think the modeling of this variability is really, really difficult mathematically, right? And we have no data on that. So there's like one side. The second thing what I really think is that we should think about having actually a different kind of communication because your brain and my brain do have certain digital signals. And if we would find a way that actually you do not put your thoughts or your feelings through this very limited apparatus that we have, which is speech, in order to communicate, but somehow directly connect each other with these brain digital signals, we will actually understand each other much better. And this is what EEG and brain-driven interfaces are about. This is really interesting idea. How quickly do you think these brain-computer interfaces are going to develop? There is quite a lot of things already done, but relatively simple. Like, for example, there are reflexes. There is a certain activation of the neurons which would move your arm. And people who lost their arm, their amputees, they could actually train the robotic arm to lift with exactly just thinking to lift their arm. So these kind of simple signals we can give and use in brain interfaces. But again, this is just really, really primitive, you know. The complexity of thought and the complexity of feelings is just 
immense. And I don't think we currently are capable of doing that. And how long? I even cannot say that. I mean, if I say 10 years, I was thinking uh, most of the things on faces would be done by 10 years, but it's far from there. You were talking earlier about the imperfections of the data that we have. And I'd just like to ask about the broader issue of diversity in that when we're talking about human-robot interaction, it tends to be robots interacting with an incredibly thin sliver of humanity. It tends to be robots interacting with white men. How much of a problem is this? The issue that I always raise is the fact that we have generally a gender and diversity problem in the whole field of artificial intelligence. If you just look at the percentages of female students in computer science, in UK, these percentages are between 10 and 15%. Actually, UCL, University College London, has the best of these percentages. They have 25% of female students in computer science. But Oxford and Cambridge have around 10%. So it's really, really troublesome. This is actually across the whole Europe. UK is probably, unfortunately, the place where these percentages are the lowest. And the reason is actually, in my opinion, the field of computer science, computers, robots, have been always seen as technology, as engineering, which is somehow for males. And I think that went just one step beyond. And currently, females may shy off this kind of studies because they think they will be alone. For females, it's exceptionally important to have a good social circle. This is a difference with men. This is evolutionary. And in principle, I think the fact that there are so few females in this are then again one further aspect that puts females off. But I think with bringing forward some role models, some successful females in the field may actually change this picture. And we should do as much as we can to change this picture. Who are the role models you would look to in that regard? Those are the people, those are females who are successful in, say, computing business or uh, academia. So my colleagues from UCL or uh, from Oxford University, there is a lot of really good female professors of computer science that should be actually role models. But also, for example, there is the chief executive officer of IBM is also a female. So, you know, these kind of ladies would be really great to, mm-hmm. to have more around and that we hear more about them. Clearly, there's a very broad societal problem with this lack of balance. What are the specific harms that it might result in? If the technology, like it is nowadays, if the technology is built all the time by white male, the technology will be aimed at white males. But that is a very relatively small proportion of the population because you have other diversities like minorities and females. So in principle, you're looking in less than 50%, probably around, you know, 20% of the population. So the whole technology will be aimed at them, which is pity because a large majority of the population will be ignored. That means that the technology will not be able to be accepted by the population. On the other side, the technology can help the population in many aspects. I mean, climate change, cleaning of the earth, new medical devices, they're all coming from the technology. And it's really important that the technology is accepted and not seen as a villain and not seen as an exclusive right for white males. Earlier this year, I visited you at your lab at Imperial. It was a fantastic insight into the work that you do there. And you showed me your robot, Zeno. Can you tell us about Zeno? Zeno is originally built by Hanson Robotics. 
and sold to Robokind. This is another company that now they sell these robots for the purposes of helping autistic children learn in a different way, learn with robots. As you may know, autistic children love everything which has to do with mechanical parts. The more mechanical parts, the happier they are. They really like these kind of puzzles and things which are mechanic. And they're also predictable. This is very important. At the same time, autistic children have one of the issues, and that is missing of gestalt. This is the ability of the brain to interpret the facial expression as a whole. Instead, the brain interprets in case of autistic child as a set of parts. So given that there are 10,000 facial expressions that we can make. 10,000? Yes, and 7,000 of which we are showing on a daily basis. What are the other 3,000? They're quite difficult and probably exaggerated expressions that we do not show all the time. But 7,000 we express on a daily basis. For us, typically developing people, we classify them in maybe 15, 20 different categories, simply to make our life easier, right? For autistic children, that's 7,000 different facial expressions. So it's really difficult for them to understand human face. This is the reason why they usually shy off looking directly into a person, but that's then consequently the reason why they cannot learn what are the facial expressions, which would be a typical expression of a certain emotion. So when they feel certain emotion, they show it in their own way. They don't know what would be a prototypical way to show this emotion. Hence, there is now a communication gap because they're showing the expressions and their emotions in a way we don't understand. And if they look at us, they don't understand what we show. So it is a communication gap. And the way to bridge that is to teach them what would be the prototypic expressions that they may want to use when they show certain emotions. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. However, if this is done by a human therapist, there is a problem of emphasis. Human therapists usually say, you know, when you're happy, you then smile. And you would see just my smile. But I just raise the eyebrows in order to emphasize that this is a smile. For a child, this is not anymore the smile. It's an eyebrow raise with a smile, right? So it is very difficult for them to catch it from a human therapist. And this is where Zeno comes in. Because you can program Zeno. And Zeno will always show the exactly same facial expression each time it should show that facial expression. And that's the power, actually, that we use to consistently teach the child an expression which would be a prototypic expression of a certain emotion. And how many of the 7,000 emotions can Zeno detect? Zeno, in his own right, cannot detect so many expressions. The program, the software that we built in, can detect actually something like 32 facial muscle actions. 
as you can imagine, facial expressions are made by contraction of the muscles. There are 45 different strands of muscles in your face, and they can be combined in a different ways. Zeno can recognize around 32, not 45. These 45 are actually on the border of the face and we do not see them very well and they're difficult to recognize. But these 32 he can recognize and most of them he can mimic. These are then classified as expressions of emotion, like a smile. Or in a surprise, you will raise your eyebrows and you will open your mouth, which will be then an expression of surprise, a combination of muscle actions. As you're explaining, this is a two-way process. So Zeno can help these children understand the human emotions that are being reflected in other people's faces. But you're saying that Zeno can also help us interpret what autistic children are trying to say as well. Is that right? True. If you train Zeno for an individual child, we have to say that autistic children have very different expressions of the same emotion. So two different children will probably express the same emotion differently. We do not know whether this is fully true, what I say, because this finding is based on the studies in UK and USA. Both cultures are fully culturally diverse, and hence we do not know whether this comes due to cultural diversity or within a certain culture slice, you will have more similarity between the expressions. But currently, we just know that children express very differently the same emotion. And hence, if you train a robot to recognize the emotions and expressions of that very child, then the robot could actually be a translator between the child and, say, adult or typically developing person who would understand the expressions of the child. So, I mean, this really reinforces your point about the importance of diversity, doesn't it? I mean, in some cultures, sticking your tongue out has one meaning. In other parts of the world, it has another. So if you're only judging sticking tongues out by white males in California, that's probably a very bad sample. Exactly. So, yes, all Polynesians actually show this expression as the expression of power. So it's very interesting that you mentioned that. Yes, true, it's exceptionally important to have as many people in the technology that are diverse, yes. And you're running different study groups both in London and Belgrade, is that right? Could you just expand a bit on that? What are you hoping to understand from that comparative study? It's exactly what I just said. In UK, we know that there is a lot of cultural groups that we meet. So children are coming from absolutely incredibly a lot of ethnic backgrounds. So, for example, you have Indians, you have Africans, you have East Asians, you have like Caucasians, of course, there are many, many different cultural backgrounds. In Serbia, you have single one. I'm born in Serbia, so that's my native country. There are very, very few foreigners. So people are five, six, seven generations Serbians. And hence, we believe that if we can find any similarity due to culture, it will be in such a population where you actually have very low ethnic diversity. So we want to see whether, say, the grouping of expressions that we will observe in Serbian kids would be more homogeneous than in the case of UK, where we do know that it is very heterogeneous. What's your hunch based on the research you've done so far? Is this universal? It's not universal, that's for sure. It's culture dependent, that's for sure. We actually have some hints that, yes, we have more homogeneous expressions in Serbia. 
Our guess is that this is correct. I mean, our first blink on the data says so, but we need to confirm this in a further study. And where will we end up with Xeno? I mean, what do you ultimately hope to achieve? Ultimately, we would like that people get to know about this technology. And this is a European study. It's funded by Horizon 2020, European Commission. And one of the partners is a Portuguese company that builds the robots. The name is IDMind. And we hope that they will be able to take this technology and maybe collaborate with Robokind to combine this kind of technology with the robot itself so that we can actually build robots that would be culture-dependent, can help autistic children in various cultures based on the models from this culture. Now, you're a very busy person. You also have another job, which is running the AI Centre for Samsung in Cambridge. What are you focusing on there? We have a number of focuses, but the main one is building human-centric AI technology. When we talk about human-centric technology, we usually talk about understanding humans in a way that other humans, hopefully, would understand. So we are very interested in building models that would be able to interpret human interaction in a more accurate way and in a more versatile way. So in exactly the same way. Context is very important, how old the person is, what is the gender of the person, what is the cultural background of the person. Take this all into account when, for example, understanding speech, we're understanding whether a person has an emotional content in the speech, how this emotion colors this, whether we can guess based on the emotion what would be the wish of the person and can proactively provide further input for the person and so on. There's like one part of the research. The second one is building independent living technology for elderly people, mostly. I say mostly because some of the technology will probably be applicable for any generation. But we are very much focused on elderly because one of the problems, as you know, is this aging population. And we will have a huge increase of older people in the coming years. The prediction is actually something like 40% of rise in the next 15 years. In UK, this percentage is actually higher in Asia. And uh, also they will, in Asia, they will live even longer. So they will have an increase of, I think, 100% of people over 80. So it's a huge increase in older people. As we know, when we get old, we are getting certain illnesses. Dementia is one of them. Depression is another one. The statistics are grim. Nine out of ten people having depression are not recognized by NHS in UK. The reason is that people somehow themselves, also the patients, they simply expect themselves to be depressed. They expect that they are a little bit down. And I think this is one of the main problems. Nobody complains about this, really, but people suffer and they don't have this happy living. So we would like to build a technology that could spot these kind of things. And we would build applications that could be used by the families to talk to their grandparents and spot these kind of behavioral signals. Our software will be spotting and giving the feedback. Like, I spotted that. That was the number of laughters I calculated. There are certain biomarkers in the past 15 days which aggregated for, for example, depression signals or the dementia signals, hence give a flag. So it's not a diagnostic tool that's very important. It's more like a personal assistant or even a family assistant through which you will be able to communicate with your grandparents and both the grandparents and you will be informed about some possible changes in mood. 
And that will be via a mobile phone? Yes. That's fascinating. I was talking to a telecoms company the other day that was saying that one of the early indicators of dementia was the angle at which people hold their phones. You can tell um, from the data that they gather if the angle of the phone decreases that 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 is an early a sign yeah, of early onset. Yeah, that's very interesting one. There is a lot of things that we can look at because, as you can imagine, dementia affects the nerves, and the nerves all over the head die out, and hence the muscular reactions of face and of eyes is different in people with dementia than in typically growing old people. But the issue is that we as humans cannot see that because they're very, very subtle changes. This is why the cameras, which simply have this temporal resolution that are higher, could help us here. I'd also like to go back to what you were saying earlier about the duality of technology, that a lot of this, as you have explained, can be used for incredibly good purposes. But you're also alluding to the fact that some of this can be used for bad purposes. In your field, what can we do today to stop some of these bad outcomes, some of the bad applications of technology, which are perfectly easy to imagine? First of all, I think that it is incredibly important to deal with the question of data privacy. GDPR is a wonderful movement forward. I know that a lot of people make a big fuss out of it, but this fuss is coming mostly because people want to uniformly address all the problems. I don't think that's the way forward, but the whole idea of addressing data privacy is very important. So if we as humans will be the owners of our own data, then actually none of these rogue applications would really become possible because people will not give away their data, right? They now have to give explicitly this data. And this is why I always say, please, to everybody, this is my appeal to everybody, take care of your data. Do not give it willingly to social media, which is one of the easiest ways to give away your data. Do not give it willingly by clicking on all possible cookies. You don't need those cookies. These cookies collect the data about what you search on the internet, what are you interested at, and so on. Facebook filed a patent for a camera that would recognize people in the shops and, based on their search patterns, provide custom prices for everything you want in a shop. So this is really scary. Don't give your data. And this is what we are doing differently in Samsung because we want all the processing to remain on the device because if everything remains on the device, then the device can have a wall between the device and the internet and no data can leak and the user is the one who can click yes i will allow the data to go out or not but if all that data were collected centrally that would be massively useful for your research wouldn't it this is correct but people should accept that and the way we will collect the data is simply clearly explaining through an informed consent what we are doing with the data And also, we will give incentives to people to give us their data and not stealing the data, which is the current mode of operation. Big tech companies take the data without paying the users for this data. Stealing? That's a pretty strong expression. Well, I said so because this is what happened actually with Cambridge Analytica. They did pay Facebook, but Facebook didn't pay their users for this data. We're going to end with three quick questions, which we ask all our guests now. Which is the most overrated or underrated technology in your view? Do you really want an answer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
I would like to note that this is my personal view and I would like to state this just as a completely neutrally standing academic in the field. I believe that driverless cars are overestimated. There is a huge amount of funds going to this branch. I think that we do not have infrastructure to support this kind of technology. We still have streets which are very narrow with many different obstacles on the streets with pedestrians going around and so on. Having cars that could navigate this kind of infrastructure is very, very difficult and I believe is not a way forward. A lot of investment and research and work is needed to actually make this possible. There is another possibility, and that is to actually move this infrastructure in the air. And that's something that very few actually companies investigated, which is a pity. Mm-hmm. So you think we'll end up with flying cars before we this have self-driving cars? This is what I think would be a much better idea. Okay. Second question is, which non-technological book would you recommend to people to understand technology? There are actually two books that I would warmly recommend. One is the book on Fourth Industrial Revolution. And this is the book which was published by World Economic Forum. And I think it's a must read for anybody who would like to move forward in this, not only field, but in era. And another one which I think it's really curious is the book by I.G. Good from 1970. He actually has this uh, some future social repercussion of computers. And he, the predictions that he made in 1970 were so accurate. <laughs> it is it's just fascinating that nobody took notice at that time and did something with that. And do you have the name of the book? I think it's called like this, Some Future Social Repercussions of Computers. Uh-huh. Okay, final question. Which is going to be the biggest problem for the tech industry over the next few years, financial bubble or that there will be a popular backlash against big tech? I don't think AI will have at all a problem. In fact, I don't think there is a stop in AI. Not another AI winter? No, this is what I believe. I know that there was a lot of problems before. One of these winters came actually when we realized that we cannot use neural networks. But then again, the hardware got faster and better and uh, memory is bigger. And now we can use the neural networks. This is called currently deep learning. And I think that there is so much potential in this that, in fact, I do not see at all that anything like stopping will happen. However, what will happen is very large disruptions. So the disruptions that we have seen currently, like Airbnb or Uber or Deliveroo and all these things, these kind of disruptions will just become bigger. I don't think they are bad by definition. The disruptions can be good. But some of the biggest disruption, I believe, will be in government because I think we cannot continue by status quo and we cannot continue by just doing the things as usual. I think that people talk now. People can inform about other people's opinion, lies and uh, misinformation, which we have witnessed very recently when we had a vote in this country. I don't think this could be possible anymore. On the other side, 
in order to truly make the best out of the technology, we also need to stop specific targeting like was done by Cambridge Analytica. And we need to make the regulations, this is what I believe government needs to do, the regulations of how to protect the truth and the ethics of the data and of the impact that the data can have on people. Thank you very much, Maya. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.